Hey everybody, I'm Michelle. And I'm David. Welcome to episode 7 of Expiration Date. Today we're going to get back to a more normal episode for us, and we're going to talk about the privatization of the criminal legal system. Mm. What do you think of when I say the phrase, money is the root of evil? Today, we're going to attempt to find ways that greed has wormed its way into every form and function of the criminal legal system. This is a huge and unbelievable problem. If you think to yourself, this can't possibly be true, we live in a democracy, I think that you should just pay attention and I'll post all my sources. This stuff is not hidden. It is freely available information. Be open to what we have here. And please, we ask you to double check our sources just to make sure that what we're saying are not my words or Michelle's words, but truth that has come from research. And today we're going to jump around a little bit because this issue is really not complicated. Um, I'm just going to kind of give you examples of how private businesses, for-profit businesses have wormed their way into every facet of this system. I think a lot of people really get scared when we say private prisons, for-profit prisons. And really that is not something that we're going to talk about on this episode a lot. We're going to save that for season two because the vast majority of private companies that lock people up, lock people up at the border, Mm -hmm. only about 10, less than 10% of American prisons are privatized. Whereas 75% of border detainees are held by private companies. So what you're saying is that instead of talking about private prisons, what we're talking about more is how private firms and companies and organizations have worked their way into the publicly run system. Interesting. And so it's, it's, so it's a little bit of a brain shift because a lot of people think, well, let's just get rid of private prisons. So when Joe Biden announced that he's going to slowly phase out private federal prisons, people think that that's a big victory. And what I'm telling you is it's really not. It's less not. than 10%. Less than 10% of all prisoners, and he's only phasing out federal, okay, not state. So there will still be state private prisons. And I think with what, one of if the top one or two world's population that is imprisoned, we're going to phase out 10% will put us what, at number three? Yeah. Maybe. I, I mean, I think we'd still probably, even if we got rid of 10% today, I yeah. think we'd still be number one easily. We're going to start with policing. One thing that I've been getting some feedback about is I want to make clear that I don't hate the police. I don't take pleasure watching police officers. Like the Derek Chauvin trial just made me sad. It's not like David and I talked about this on the George Floyd episode. Targeting individual police officers is not going to get us anywhere. It's a systemic problem. And most police officers are normal people, just like most soldiers are normal people, um, just like most people are normal people. And this system incentivizes them to do bad things. I'm not criticizing the character of individual officers. Now, I could do that very easily, but that's really not the point of what we're trying to do here. So we're going to start with policing. So one in five jobs in the United States is uh, related to policing or security or some kind of law enforcement. What? One in five. So this is a huge, huge, I mean, there's well over 150 million people employed Yeah, by the criminal legal system or security. That doesn't include like private security, but one in five jobs in the U.S. are related to policing or security and policing follows money. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that police target rich areas. 
I mean money and capital direct where police go. So when we see things like the Breonna Taylor murder, they're fighting in court right now because the lawyers have alleged that the police were targeting that area because of a gentrification effort. So right around the time that Breonna Taylor was killed, there was a police officer in Atlanta. I guess whistleblower is a is a good term. This is from an article. It's called The Cop Who Quit Instead of Helping to Gentrify Atlanta. And um, this police officer said, it dawned on me that the entire system, the entire thing, is just a shitty mafia system. And his name is on this article, but I'm not going to share it because his family has been targeted. By cops? Allegedly. Allegedly. (laughs) Which just reinforces the whole mafia system. Yeah. On his beat, they started telling him, we really want you to police this section of the boulevard. We think there are dope boys in there. We think there are a lot of there is a lot of illegal activity happening, and we really want you to focus there. So we're going to put up signs that say you can't park on the street. I want you to go write tickets on every single car on the street, and I want you to get those cars out of there. If they don't move them, tow them. I want you to start running checks on everybody standing on the street. If they've got warrants, I want you to lock them up. It became this very aggressive policing strategy in the Bedford Pines, which was strange because it is extremely rare for them to tell you to do anything like this. It's unusual for you to give that, for them to give you specific directions. It made me very curious. So on my own time, I drove over there and had a conversation with some people. I was like, hey, this is what I'm being asked to do. Why do you think that is? What's going on? A homeowner in the area was very frank with me. He said, the guys who own Bedford Pines got their first tax bill last year, and their taxes were assessed based on all of the gentrification that's happening in the area. So they really wanted to move everybody out of these apartments And they wanted to rebuild these nice, expensive apartments. And the government said no. So then they said, okay, well, let's just increase the rent. And they tried to increase the rent. And Section 8 guys came back and said, no, you can't do that either. The only way you can evict or do anything is that if that person who owns the apartment is convicted of a felony. So the Bedford Pines guys went to the police department and said, we want you to police in here. And we're going to give you a section of Bedford Pines for you to have office space. And I want you to lock up as many people as possible so that we can make these apartments vacant and we can knock them down. Is that illegal or just immoral? Just immoral. It's not illegal. And so this particular police officer went to his supervisors and said, is this what the case is? And they looked at me like, are you stupid? Of course. Why else would we be doing this? And so this police officer chose to quit and his family has been mercilessly harassed. And so the point of telling you this story is that money directs policing. We've talked about broken windows policing on this podcast many times. We've brought it up. If it's an area of poverty, the police are going to target it. And rich people can often control what police do. Yeah, you say money directs policing, but the opposite is true. The lack of money really focuses policing, too. That's kind of what it is. So we can't look at money directing it without looking at the absence of money and how, how that comes about. And we can't look at that without looking at the other systemic issues that involve them that keep people poor, mm-hmm. which is another season, another show, another something. But yeah. Well, and two, a lot of the, a lot of what I think people miss, maybe because I'm too, maybe my voice gets too emotional, but this is not an emotional thing. Like a, every single police officer that goes out on this beat is not just simply racist or classist. They're just doing what they're told to do. Right. And this is a very racist and classist system. And so the areas that are targeted, and when I say money directs policing too, there's like special parking places at Walmart for police officers when they report crimes. 
and it's taken very seriously. Now, as an average homeowner, if you call the police and report a robbery, what's going to happen? Nothing. Right. Well, you bring up a good point, though. Like, these are police officers just doing what they've been directed to do. Mm-hmm. But you also just read an example of someone who didn't do that. So we have to also, while we recognize that there is, that they're doing what they're supposed to do, there's always a choice. Right. There's and in choice. this case, the guy made the right one and basically ruined his life. I mean, he's in his 30s, late 20s, early 30s, and he doesn't have a career anymore. He gave up a pension. He gave up a great job in a time where it's hard for somebody to get a job as good as a police officer that doesn't have a college education. Because mm-hmm. again, another thing we've talked about on this podcast is you do not have to have a college education to be a police officer in America. You have to go to school for five and a half months that is done by police departments or police academies. I think when we talk about police officers, it's it's no, it's notable to point out that this one is what we would consider one who's doing the right things and moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And so when you say things like all cops are evil or things like that, I really think it's a mistake to focus on the individual. I really think we need to focus on the system. So uh, money directs policing. That's pretty obvious in everything that is done by police. We're going to talk about another aspect of policing called civil asset forfeiture. Basically, it is law enforcement can seize your property if they feel that there is enough evidence that it could be used in a crime. Now, the standard for this is very, very low. All the police officer has to say is, I was reasonably suspicious that this could be used in a crime. Like a crime in the future, this could be used? Yes. Like if you have cash in your car, they can just take it and there's nothing you can do about it. Or a Um, two by four? Yes. Because you're building onto your house? Exactly. Or your car Mm. or your house. There is a really excellent YouTube video from a show that comes on HBO that um, called Last Week Tonight, the guy named John Oliver, and he does a lot of policing stuff and he sums it up really well. I'm going to link the YouTube video. It's about 15 minutes. It's really worth a watch. There is a little bit of foul language foul language but consider yourself warned consider yourself warned however civil asset forfeiture and a lot of people are going to say well they have to have they have to be able to prove in court that this could be used in a crime and i'm telling you they do not Hmm. they can just say i was reasonably suspicious that this was drug money or that they were selling drugs from this house and they can seize your property and they can keep it oh man i'm thinking about how that can play into just like complete profiling of people if you see Mm -hmm. if you see someone a minority who's driving down the road in a nice car and you say well maybe they got that money from drug money and Mm -hmm. then boom there's anyway which is exactly what happens and another thing i want to say about civil asset forfeiture is in 2015 the washington post did a in-depth article on civil asset forfeiture and they found that police seized over five billion dollars in 2015 and all of the combined burglary made up $3.5 billion. So law enforcement is taking more than burglars are from hap- their communities. What happens to it? Does it ever get returned? No, they keep it. Now, if you want to get it returned, you have to sue, basically. Which, in this in that video with John Oliver, they have a family that their son got caught with $40 worth of heroin. Hmm. And he lived with them, so they seized their house. And they tried to sue to get it back. Um, and this is a pretty wealthy white middle class couple didn't weren't even allowed to meet with the judge. They had to meet with the district attorney, 
which I mean, he he is on the side with the police like they share offices, they share, you know, they work together. And so the people that take your property are the ones that decide whether they give it back or not. Is this what comes up at police auction? Yes. And they can sell it. So they prefer cash because that's the easiest. So when a cop stops you, a lot of times they will ask you, do you have any cash in the vehicle? Your answer should 100% always be no. Interesting. Because they will use it as an excuse to search you. And in many cases, they will take it. So what happens to the money that they take like that or the police auction, the, the proceeds that come from that? It depends. Um, most places, it just goes directly back to the police department. Um, and they have a civil asset forfeiture slush fund. Um, and so they can withdraw from it for basically any reason. There are really no rules on what they can use that money for in most places. Now, there are some states that say civil asset forfeiture is a crime, and we're not going to do that. I think there's like three states in America that say that. However, they can turn the assets over to federal prosecutors and receive 80% of the value of the cash or car or house returned to them regardless of what the state law is. Hmm. So if if you happen to be in a state where it is regulated, it's very easy to get around it. And so um, those are the two big things I wanted to talk about with just policing. Of course, there are many, many, many things that come into being motivated by profit that affect policing. For example, the drug screening kits that they use have almost no incidence of false negatives, but have a super high incidence of false positives. So you see that leading to more interactions with police, thus more money for police departments, thus spending more money on those drug testing kits that they buy from a private company. Glitch of it giving false positives is a feature, not a bug. I think it's important to point out too, and correct me if I'm wrong, like what this <clears throat> is doing is not, it's not illegal. The things they said is not illegal. Some of them are, are they have laws for it, but it's kind of what what our expectations are on the people who are supposed to protect and serve, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what it says. We're here to protect and serve to keep the peace. Are we wanting them guided by whoever can pay the most or direct the most or whatever is financially motivated? Do we want it done by what is fair and just mm -hmm. and right? Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it's the same as leaving all your valuables outside and expecting people not to steal them because they have honor. And it's mm -hmm. like, what unreasonable expectation are you putting on police departments? Because when it means more money for you, more money for your place of work, more guns, more weapons, more protective, more gear, protective gear, newer uniforms, newer, better yeah. cars, a margarita machine in I mean, one case for real. It was a literal slush fund. <laughs> slushy fund. Slushy fund. I, I stole that from John Oliver. He used oh, yeah. that joke, but literally can use it pretty much on anything they want. How, what are you asking these people to do? Like, I feel like it's just so naive to think. And if you're sitting in a place where you're like, well, this doesn't affect me. And this isn't, you know, I'm not one of these people that has this issue. We call that privilege. And it's something that, you know, as humanity, we should kind of really all think about how our choices or lack of choices, lack of decisions affect other people. Well, and one thing too, a lot of people are like, maybe every once in a while, somebody that's not committing a crime is affected by this. But a lot of police departments and police unions say, 
We have used this to take down major drug rings. We've used it to take down child trafficking rings, civil forfeiture, where they can just take all their money and all their stuff and their houses and everything, and which I get, but the vast majority of civil asset forfeiture is done to people who are not convicted of a crime, hmm. people who are not arrested, and it's usually less than $1,000. So while it could be used for that, that's not what it's being used for. That's interesting. And that parlays into other other aspects of social services too, right? You have those that are abuse that abuse the system, but you also have those that really benefit from it. And mm -hmm. you can't, you have to find that sweet spot from like completely dissolving everything to where it helps the ones that need to be helped and weeds out the ones that don't. Mm -hmm. And the same thing, with policing, how is it where we can focus on the ones or implement the things that really need to be done. So we're still capturing those prostitution rings and the drug rings, but yet people aren't suffering as a result of the whim of a police officer, mm -hmm. which is interesting because we put a lot of, I would hope, and maybe you can answer this, like we put a lot of training on the fact that police officers can make those decisions in the moment, but yet we motivate them with different things, right? Mm -hmm. Monetarily motivate to, to look for something. Mm -hmm. And as a lot of us know, if we're, if we are told about something, we're going to start to see it more and more mm -hmm. if it comes aware to it. Hmm. Well, and when, when I was a nurse, you would see like these procedures will come up that is like a new medical equipment where you can do this very minor procedure that helps some people. And because it's new, insurance hasn't really evaluated it yet. So they'll pay out like huge money for it. So like there's this drain you can put in one of your sinuses that is really helpful for some people. It really is. However, it is only useful in a very specific portion of the population. However, there's a doctor in Conway that does like six a day in his clinic and gets $3,500 a pop. And is he an evil guy? Probably not. But he's doing something that makes him a lot of money and doesn't really do a lot of harm other than not just not help people and do an unnecessary procedure. And so all I'm saying is, is when you have the profit motive and I understand that the police are not a private organization, but they are making a ton of money and there's a ton of people involved. We're talking billions of dollars a year. It's going to go bad. Like it's going to go badly. Why is it that, I mean, you say they're making billions of dollars a year, but why do we always hear about budget shortfalls and that kind of stuff? Because the police department, they want more money. Like the George Floyd act gave literally just gave more money to police departments and they call it like the defund the police movement. And they're just literally funding police more. And it's, it's insane. For me. The bill, basically, what it said was that we are going to increase the budgets of police departments for more training, which more training could mean more arms training, more arms training, or more training on how to put a choke somebody in a chokehold where you don't just kill them. Um, or, more, or more historic Hitler rhetoric yeah. per previous episodes. Yeah. <laughs> or how to block cell phone video when you're. Because I think that's what police departments learned from the George Floyd case is, number one, do not let private citizens film with their cell phones, even though they have the legal right to do that. It's really important for you to block the view of the arrest. And yeah, basically, that's it. Hmm. But anyway, that's a whole different episode. Okay, now we're going to move on to the courts. And by the, I would just mean a general term, the courts. Um, this is after you have been arrested or ticketed or are somehow involved in the court system. However, we're not talking about jail and prisons yet. We will get there. The court system is set up to 
nickel and dime poor communities to death. I'm going to read from and quote heavily this PowerPoint presentation that was put out by the American Bar Association in June of 2020, and it talks about the privatization of services in the criminal justice system. Their goal with this presentation was to call out a problem that they are seeing that is leading to a lack of trust in the criminal justice system. Okay, so section one, and I'm going to link this PowerPoint. It's really worth reading. Um, I know it sounds really boring, especially if you're not a lawyer, but I really think it's worth it. Okay, so this is from the presentation. The most common and best known private for-profit entities in the criminal legal system are those in the bail industry. Bail bond agencies in the United States have served and profited from the criminal legal system for more than a century. Bail is cash paid by an individual charged with a crime to guarantee that he or she will return for future court proceedings. And if you're remembering from a previous episode where we interviewed Veronica Brasfield, she talked about how how bail is used now is not what it was historically intended to do at all. In 2018, the Marshall Project reported that 193 bail companies operating in Mississippi received $43 million in fees over 18 months, 36% of that amount coming from small bonds. One company that operates in Mississippi in 11 counties took in $2.6 million in that same 18 months, with a 46% of that coming from bonds of less than $5,000. Just to reiterate, bail is the when you contract with a private company to pay that, they pay the court system, and then you pay them back. Once you enter into a contract with them, they have remarkable control over your life. They can detain you physically. They can set the terms of your bail. And I don't mean that the judge will defer. Like, I don't mean that the judge takes their advice. I mean, they set the terms of your bail. And so when they do that, they can often say, well, the terms of your bail are going to be, oh, hey, you're going to have to be on probation for 12 months and you're going to have to wear this ankle monitor that we happen to rent for a small fee and you're going to have to take this anger management class. Yeah, we we actually teach that. Uh, so you'll pay us separately for that, but you have to take it. Also, um, you know, we really think that you should get drug tested. Even if it's not a drug related crime, you also have to pay for those drug tests. But don't worry, we do them in house. So we'll give you a discount. And then they get to set that. So they get money from all of these. Each little term that they can set, they can get money from. And so we see that these huge businesses are incentivized to set up longer, more complicated probation terms and to keep as many people in the system as possible. And that's just a setup for failure. It's a, it's, it's, they set up people to fail so that they can keep them in the system. And as we have talked about many times on this podcast, when you're sitting in jail in America, which is a dangerous, violent place, if somebody says, hey, you get to go home if you'll just agree to this, whether you committed the crime or you didn't, 96% of cases in the United States are solved with a plea deal. And they are raking in money from this. And I just don't like living in a place where private corporations can do this to people, especially when the only thing they're motivated by is profit. They are not trying to reduce crime. They are trying to increase crime because it benefits them financially. Let's take this in another direction. What if we applied the same thing to 
the alcohol business or the cigarette business? How, I mean, they're motivated by profits. I think what you have to decide with alcohol and tobacco is you can be a reasonable consumer of those things without immediate consequences to your life. Now, there could be an argument that, hey, alcohol should be illegal because it only does bad, or cigarettes should be outlawed because they only do bad. However, the power of the state heavily regulates on the side of the consumer. If you buy cigarettes, they say on literally on the box, like, hey, this will kill you. And when you buy a bottle of alcohol, it says on there, like, don't drink this while you're pregnant. It could kill your baby. There is some regulation on behalf of the consumer, where with the criminal legal system, not only is it not a voluntary system, whereas I voluntarily go buy alcohol or cigarettes, you're forced into it, and there is very little oversight from the government. I would say the reason that they have those Surgeon General warnings is because people like you and me fought for those kind of things. People have sued them in courts. And I think and it'd be necessary, done. too, with the prison system as well. But, I mean, you, you bring up a great point when it comes to choice versus no choice or the systemic issues that come into it. Mm-hmm. A court case last year ordered that a St. Louis woman report to monthly private for-profit company after she posted bail and was waiting for her trial. Her name is called, and an office worker jots down her personal information and asks if she's staying out of trouble. The visit takes less than five minutes and costs her $30. She was told that if she missed a payment, an arrest warrant would be issued. She stated, people say you're innocent until proven guilty, but really you're guilty until proven innocent because I'm the one paying to keep my freedom every month. In Oklahoma, a private for-profit company lists itself as a title company online, charges for anywhere from $40 to $300 per month for pretrial supervision. The company is one of a growing number of private, for-profit companies that have entered into pretrial services industry and charge individuals for community-based supervision. It is not uncommon for an individual to wait six months to a year before trial, even on a minor charge. Monthly supervision fees during this time can easily reach hundreds, if not thousands of dollars per month. Individuals are also responsible for paying for drug and alcohol testing, again, many times set by the company that they are paying electronic monitoring they're required to pay to rent the tracking devices. In 2015, police pulled over a South Carolina resident for failing to use a turn signal, arrested him, and took him to jail. The next day, his mother posted bail for $2,000 as the judge ordered. As a condition of his release, he had to wear and pay for an electronic monitoring device. The for-profit company that provided the monitor charged him a setup fee of $179.50, and nine twenty-five per day, almost $300 per month. After nine months of wearing the device and still waiting for his trial, he had paid over $2,500 just for the ankle monitor. He finally gave up. He fell apart. He said that he felt like he was on a chain gang. These bills were getting out of control, and they just have to lock me up. On August 4th, 2015, he turned himself in because he'd simply run out of money. In addition to pre-trial supervision. We have diversion programs that are often required as set by these companies, even for minor crimes. An Arizona resident was charged with $10 worth of marijuana in 2014. The court offered him the option of enrolling in a diversion program run by a private for-profit company. The program offered him community service, 
group classes, and individual counseling for a fee of $715. The company also routinely adds extra fees for drug testing, class rescheduling, payment plans, late payments, underpayments, and even overpayments. His counseling sessions were with a case manager who was a former police officer, not a trained professional, and he reported that the primary topic discussed in these sessions was whether he was making his payments. These kind of diversion programs go for bad checks, drug charges, traffic charges, and are pervasive in community supervision. And as we've talked about on this podcast before, we spend a lot of time talking about the million, 2.4 million people that are locked up. There's, I think it's six and a half million people that are on probation yearly at any point in this country. So this is millions and millions of people. In Kentucky, one probation company charged supervised individuals $20 each for a periodic criminal background check and another $35 per late fee. Drug tests can cost as little as $12 or as much as $80 that the person is often responsible for paying for. This is in addition to all these fees that we're talking about from this specific PowerPoint are talking about private companies. This is, this is in addition to the fees that you have to pay to the court itself. And the consequences of non-payment can be jail time. And the kind of debt that people accrue to these private companies is very different than the kind of debt you accrue for like a bank loan for a house. So the rules are very different. So these companies do not have the regulation that a like credit card company would have. And so they can, like we said, they can physically detain you. They can lie to you. They can tell you that they're going to take you to jail when they can't legally do that. They can basically do whatever they want. A guy in Florida was charged with a DUI. He accepted a plea deal for 12 months of supervised probation and incurred the following costs. His probation fee was $50 a month. His DUI school was $430. His victim impact panel was $50. His 10-day vehicle impound was $100. His six-month ignition interlock was $600. His random urine and breath tests were an additional $1,500. So it cost him $3,300 for a minor crime. And most people that are targeted by police, as we've talked about on this podcast before, don't have that kind of money laying around. That really gives you the basic overview of kind of the court fee system. And as, as we've discussed previously, if you do not pay your debts to the court and sometimes to these private companies, even if you committed an offense that was not jailable in the first place, they can then put you in jail for lack of payment. So now we're going to get to prisons. And as we've talked about before, we're not going to really get into private prisons on this episode. We will save that for season two. Private for-profit prisons represent a small problem in this country. I do want to quote the ACLU about this before we move on. As the public good suffers from mass incarceration, private prison companies obtain more and more government dollars and private prison executives at leading companies rake in enormous compensation packages. Private prison companies essentially admit that their business model depends on locking up more and more people. The American economy should not include locking people in cages for profit. I think we can leave it after that. It's wrong. It's wrong to lock people up for profit. No one should be able to do it. It should be illegal. Now we're going to talk about once somebody goes to jail or prison, the main, the three big ways that private companies make money are through commissary, through prison labor, and through communications outside the prison. So there's tons of companies that publicly run prisons, 
have outsourced like telephone calls. There's a ton of telephone companies that charge prisoners by the minute to talk to their families. And there's, especially with COVID, was a boon for these companies because they ended in-person visitation, which is still not available in most places in the United States because COVID is still not under control in prisons. So really the telephone or video calls are the only way that prisoners can communicate with their families. And that is heavily, heavily charged. And when I say the numbers, you may think, well, that's not that much. But think that with prison labor, people working 40 hour weeks on prison labor often make less than $600 a year. And so every dollar represents hours of work in some cases. Prison labor does not have to conform to federal regulations. federal regulations for other workers. So the telephone fees, the communication fees, in many cases, the prisoners have to rent a tablet. Again, all of these fees go to these private companies. However, the private companies are not stupid. Oftentimes, they will give the prison back a certain percentage of money so that they're incentivized to keep using them. Though communication is not a basic need for survival, it really is a need to keep from dehumanizing people. And the other two that we're going to talk about are just basic needs. So food is another huge moneymaker in prisons. So oftentimes when prisons privatize their food source, the incentive is to make the most money by giving the cheapest food possible that keeps people alive. And there's been, I can send you three articles off the top of my head that this year have come out about how private companies that make food for prisons are putting like sand in the food and just terrible things. And like the water content of the food counts towards the weight of the food. And so it's just, I mean, it's crazy. It, it's really sad. And so a lot of prisoners choose to only eat from the commissary, which is another way that they make money because most prisons do not provide basic needs for their prisoners. They have to buy that from the commissary so they can buy food, which costs a ton of money. And in many cases, the people who are contracted to give food to the prisons also stock the commissary. So the worse they can make the food in the cafeteria that is freely available, well, sometimes they're still charged for that, but the more money they can get off commissary. And like in women's prisons, as we've discussed before, they don't provide any hygiene products. They, in many cases, they don't provide soap. And the prisoners have to buy these items. And so the families, and as we've discussed before, the, these are often very poor people um, that don't have the money to do that. And this is just a rampant problem that saying for-profit prisons doesn't even touch. And the video visitation that we've been seeing in some jails and prisons, because in-person visitation is so limited right now, they are making tons of money. And all of these companies add up to billions and billions of dollars a year, which means they have a lot of political power in the United States because money directs politics in the same way that it directs policing in this country. The more money you have, the more power you have. So the more power they get, the more money they get, and the worse prisoners are treated. In Alabama, there is a Depression-era law that's still on the books that any surplus budget in the food, like in the food budget, any surplus in that per year, that goes to feed prisoners, the sheriff in that county can directly pocket the cash. So if a sheriff has a budget of $1 million to feed the prisoners and he can find a way to do it for 250000 he gets to pocket the rest of that money. And 
they literally do that. There was a guy that pocketed $750,000 a couple years ago. His defense was, this is not illegal. And it's not. It wasn't illegal, even though it's really unethical. And one guy that kind of famously ended up quitting in 2018 was Sheriff Tate from the Just Mercy movie. Yeah. And so he's the guy that was that walked, locked up Walter McMillan. If you've seen that movie or read the book. Uh, yeah, he didn't retire until 2018. <laughs> the guy that was like comically racist <laughs> in the 90s. Oh, man. 2018 was when he retired. And he retired in shame because he took $110,000 from the... I mean, which isn't illegal, again. Shame, but wealthy. Yeah, he's fine. He's an old man with a bunch of money. He's going to do just fine. These private companies, just like they do the telecommunications, just like they do the food, they also infect healthcare, where they charge prisoners to be seen by a doctor that they have to pay from their own accounts. In many cases, prisoners have to... And I do, I do know a lot of people are going to say, well, prisoners have to pay... To even go to jail, they have to pay for room and board, which is true, but that's really not, unless it's a private prison, it's not going directly to a private company. We're really focusing on, even aside from the policing stuff, we're focusing more on private businesses because healthcare is for profit in this country. It affects that as well, which if you ever want personal stories about that, I can give you tons. I used to see the guys from Cummings all the time when I was a nurse practitioner. It was terrible. I hated it. Again, when you see these guys making, you know, two or three dollars a day, a ten dollar copay is a lot of money. Also, they charge fees. Private companies that have outsourced the financial services for jails and prisons charge fees for people to put money into their commissary. So if your mom wants to put money in your commissary, they take a transaction fee and these fees add up to billions of dollars a year. Prison labor is a huge, huge issue that affects the for-profit companies, but we're going to have our own, its own special, it, it really needs its own episode. So we will address that later. And the last thing I want to talk about, even though it's not directly related to for-profit companies, one thing that is unique to the American criminal legal system is that in almost every state, people who are imprisoned are not allowed to vote. However, the reason that counties fight for prisons to be included in their like fight for prisons to come to their area they say it's for jobs it's not it's so that they can increase their representation they count those people towards their population numbers and so it's really great if you have a prison with 6000 people in it it adds to your voter numbers and the census data but those people are not able to vote and so it's just like slavery but yeah, that's about it. I, I know that was kind of all over the place, but I really encourage you to read this PowerPoint. It lays out everything. It gives a lot of personal stories. And again, this isn't complicated. People make money by locking people up, so they lock people up. I have some comments. You do, Please comment. Well, I have some thoughts. And I mean, the first thought is for the people that say, yeah, but they're criminals. If they don't want to do it, don't commit crimes. And I think we've addressed that in previous episodes. It's not necessarily guilt or innocence because it's the system that can get anyone in there and the system that that can as we've talked about and shown have examples of of innocent people in prisons and so it should be everyone concerned about this and mm -hmm. the other thing to point out is that this is probably the worst part of it all none of this is illegal right right so none of this is illegal i think there's a general pride that this country was built on capitalism and 
what that has done. I mean, that's made us one of, if not the world's best economy and helped us grow with GDP and blah, 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 and foreign blah, blah, blah. But really, we don't offer solutions here on this podcast because that's not what we want to do. What right. we want to do is make you aware. And yeah, it's not illegal. But is it right? Mm-hmm. Is this what we want to be as citizens, as humanity? Because these these things dehumanize. You said it. They dehumanize people. Mm-hmm. And that that is wrong. Well, and one thing you and I have talked about personally is I heard people over and over again tell me during the Democratic primaries in 2019, 2020, that it was the most progressive class of Democrats that we've ever seen, um, where you have like Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders up there on stage. And in one debate, they asked them, they said, should prisoners be able to vote? And the only person who said yes was Bernie Sanders. And he was almost literally laughed off the stage. People were just so offended by that because Bernie was the only person up there who was saying, I think it's wrong to dehumanize these people, was by quote unquote progressives was laughed off the stage. And I'm just telling you, based on my limited knowledge of history, when you as a population are allowed to dehumanize certain groups of people and people are making money off of that, the natural conclusion is that it will grow. And, you know, today they're coming for the prisoners. And if we don't speak out tomorrow, they could come for us. I'm not saying this to say like, well, I only worry about myself and my family. I don't think that we should be allowed to dehumanize anyone. And that includes criminals. Because what crime is in America is not based on morality. Thanks for listening to us today. Yeah, sorry this was a little scattered, but it gets back to our typical type of programming (laughs) that people are used to. This was one of my favorite episodes, and it wasn't just because we had wine during it, but I really think the stuff that we're touching on is important. Mm -hmm. How you said that not all cops are bad, but there's a systemic issue with that. Right. And it's how we approach it and how the cops approach it Mm -hmm. and how they're motivated to do Mm -hmm. that. And then how, what is right? What do we expect as people, as humans, Mm -hmm. as citizens? And how the stuff that you pointed out is not illegal, but it's not moral either. And you used the term ethical early on when you were talking. And I think if we really take the opportunity to look at the resources Mm -hmm. that you post in the show notes and, and listen to the podcast and search out the truth, we'll find that a lot of what we let happen is unethical Mm -hmm. and we are complicit in that Mm -hmm. because of our inaction. Mm -hmm. And another thing that I think a lot of privileged people don't understand is how much arbitrary power these systems have. And in 10 minutes, a cop who's having a bad day can ruin your life. And when you're existing on the margins anyway, it's just another blow that keeps you from self-actualization and Uh, just a decent life. And I think that one lie that we tell ourselves is that America is the greatest country on earth. The worst day in America is better than the worst than the best day in China or whatever. And I'm telling you, it's not true (laughs) for a lot of people. We find a lot of security in making sure that we are okay because other people are worse off. But 
that really prevents us from evaluating how we really are in our current state. Mm -hmm. And so maybe what you're trying to say is that as we compare ourselves to other countries and other places, make sure we have accurate views of what we are doing and what we have here. Right. And my tax dollars don't go to the oppression of the Uyghur people in China, but my tax dollars do go to the oppression of criminals in America. I am trying to focus on things that I am directly involved with and insulting other countries that are very different from ours is usually just a smokescreen. So I wanted to circle back to the beginning of the episode. I want to say that in many places in the South, you really can't say capitalism is bad and carry on a conversation, but you can say money is the root of evil or some variation of that. Typically, the conversation ends when someone says, actually, it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. But if you look at the original text, it is, for the root of all evils is the love of money. And I feel like that's worse. It's worse than money is the root of evil because when you have a system that is the slave to a greed of men, it's evil. And this system is evil. Since we're getting close to an hour, there are two big issues that we're going to cover in the last two episodes of season one. In the next two episodes, we're going to do kind of an extension of this one. We will be discussing the 13th Amendment and prison labor in the next episode. And we're going to discuss the very rare cases that actually go to trial in the last episode. We're going to discuss what happens in a trial and how people make money off of that. And that will also be centered on how the whole system profits from these two things. Also, there's a long list of stuff we did not get into in this episode that we just don't have time, like all the niche markets that like sell weapons to police departments and things like that. People make a lot of money from that, and we just don't have time to get into it. I want you to watch for something in the news, because I know we talked about this earlier in the episode where because of COVID, communication has been totally monetized in prison because they ended in-person visitation. I want to say what my fear is based around that, because... What they have done is they have monetized every little part of somebody's interaction with their family. Like they have to buy a ta or rent a tablet to have their letters scanned into a tablet to be read in most jails and prisons. They can not get letters from their family. They have to read them on a tablet they rent. Um, and they have to rent a tablet to get charged by the minute for video calls with their families. And this is making a lot of communications companies a lot of money. And I believe that even when COVID is under control in prisons, which it's not right now, I believe that even when COVID is under control, I don't think we will ever go back to the visitation rights that people had pre-COVID. I think they will use this tragedy to end in-person visitation in prisons so that they can continue to make money off of those things. And that's just a, that's just a prediction. I have no idea if it's right, but it's something I want you to watch for. Michelle is always just one phrase away from igniting a fire. And that's what I like. <laughs> another thing that goes is the passion that we, that we bring to this, this project. The passion. The passion. Again, thanks for tuning in and listening today. I hope you found something in this that kind of made you go, what? And will, will motivate you to look a little deeper. And we ask that you reach out to us. You can email us at expirationdatethepodcast at gmail.com. Or follow us at Twitter, expiration date the Poe. And uh, if you like what we're saying and 
you think that it needs to be spread and all that, go ahead and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars and tell your friends about it. Let's expand this listeners. Yeah. And if you want to talk about any of the issues that we brought up today, email me. Um, I would love to talk to you about them because frankly, my family and friends are tired of talking about it. And so (laughs) if you are willing to speak with me about it, I would love that. These projects take time and energy and research. And if you're interested, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash expiration date and help us to make sure that we're able to research and get the best and most relevant content to you. Thanks for listening. Have a good one. Bye.